there's almost no such thing as an art thief in the way that we think of it from fiction and film. There are people who have stolen art, of course, but um, almost none that we know of in history had any specialized knowledge of the art, had any specialized skill sets in stealing art, or had even stolen art on multiple occasions. Only a handful of people fit that um, romantic description. However, when I looked at forgery, I was very surprised to see that almost every known art forger fits a remarkably consistent criminal profile. And that profile is uh, almost identical to serial killers. (laughs) So maybe there's a fine line. There's something different about art forgery scams. They violate so many basics of con artistry that they should fail. But they don't. Art scams are not just one con. They are many. And they involve many different people, each of whom works independently. Most of them don't know a scam is underway until it appears before their eyes and they instinctively know what it is. That's when they step on stage, play their role, and are rewarded with a share of the action. They must hit their marks and say their lines naturally, or in the final act, there will be no sucker left on stage, alone, defeated, and reflecting on his failures. But in art scams, there's a final twist. The sucker suspected a scam, but is willing to take part knowing he'll eventually get what he wants. The victim becomes the victor. There's a wink-wink, nod-nod at work here. Today we're talking about art forgery scams, and before the paint is dried, you'll be asking yourself if a crime has been committed at all. We've been told that anything can be art. We might find inspiration in a garbage dump, or see the Mona Lisa as only a smiling woman sitting in a chair. Maybe it's no more than that. But so-called art experts would have us think differently. For if not, they can no longer claim to be an expert. It's time now to get to some facts and talk to a real expert, a guy who could explain the Byzantine world of art forgery. My name is Dr. Noah Charney. I'm a professor and best-selling author specializing in the history and study of art crime. This story is about art, not antiquities. Antiquities are objects that are ancient and hold cultural value. They may also be art, but their value is more cultural than artistic. That's a loosey-goosey definition, but it's good enough for our production. This play also has no reference to archaeological forgeries, such as faking the Ark of the Covenant. We'll leave it to Indiana Jones to bring that story to life. The title of this play is The Problem of Providence. Dr. Charney, our lead character, calls it the quest to prove a piece of art is authentic. If it's not authentic, it's not worth top dollar to our poor sucker. Then there's the subplot. It's called the calculus of motivation. In most scams or cons, the motivation is money. But when it comes to art scams, many of the players aren't motivated by money at all. Art scams begin with a con artist. And as our curtain goes up, Dr. Charney is explaining that the scammer and the forger are not usually the same character. 
forgers usually aren't good at roping suckers in. The con man, who is not always the forger, forgers usually work alone or in pairs, and the front man or the con man is the one who's actually integrating the object into the art market. And they set up a trap in which the expert, who they're bringing the work to, eagerly falls for and convinces themselves of the fact that this is authentic. And they do this by never saying, I think that this object is by this artist. Do you agree? They weave this sort of bear trap for the expert to lead them to that conclusion themselves. That's how a con man gets his foot in the door. But what do they bring with them? What's the bait for the trap? I'm a summer guy. I'll be on the porch enjoying a cool drink and reading. Doesn't get any better unless someone else does the cooking. I'm not going to spend a day in fresh air only to eat processed foods. If I'm not eating fresh, I'm wasting one of the best seasons of the year. Fortunately, Factor comes to my rescue. They send fresh meals to me that can be cooked up in minutes. I can go back to the porch with a great meal and enjoy the sunset. I'm not into program diets. I like the chef's choice meals, but if I wanted keto, protein, vegan, or anything else, they can provide it. Premium meals could include steak, shrimp, broccolini, or asparagus. The meals come prepped and are customizable. You can get add-ons for breakfast, lunch, or snacks. And when I head out on vacation, Factor will pause my service until I get back. Plus, I love to grill. So I can choose one of Factor's meals during the week and fire up the charcoal on weekends. Be good to yourself. Enjoy the warm weather, great foods from Factor, along with some money-saving discounts I'm about to tell you about. Head to factormeals.com slash scamsandcons50 and use code scamsandcons50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code scamsandcons50 at factormeals.com slash scamsandcons50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. So the cleverest forgers create objects that appear to be a lost work by a renowned artist. So John Myatt would create works in the style of artists like Giacometti or Matisse, and John Drew would forge provenance. So he would forge archival documents that described the piece that John Myatt had just created. And so they would appear to be, for example, a 50-year-old catalog entry in some art catalog. And he would take that forged document and insert it into a real archive. He put them in the National Archives at Kew Gardens in London. He put them in the Victorian Albert Museum archives, for example. And so when he brings that painting to an expert and he says, he never says what he thinks it is. He says, "What? Um, this has been my family for, for generations. Um, I need to sell it now. I'm wondering if it's worth anything. What can you tell me about it? Um, and the first thing that an expert does is look at what's called the catalogue raisonné, which is basically the complete works of any given artist, including works that are lost, that we know of, maybe from an old photograph, maybe just from a historical reference. And if they don't see it there, the backup plan is you go to the archives and say, well, maybe a scholar missed something. And this is very exciting for art historians. We all want to be Indiana Jones. We all want to discover lost treasure. 
And then they find in the archive this piece of paper that sort of stuck to another page and you could believe that people overlooked it and you could imagine their excitement mounting and oh my goodness, here's a lost piece of provenance that describes a lost artwork by this famous artist and I'm the one who found it. Experts will take stage shortly, but let's come back to the forger and their motivations. There's money, of course, but that's not how they usually start out. They are almost all middle-aged Caucasian males with um, difficult relationships with the women in their lives who tried and in some way failed to make a success of creating original artworks. And in feeling rejected by some element of the art community, they decided to, at a subconscious level, sort of bottle up the art world as a collective private club that they weren't invited to. And they're going to show them. And they're going to show them how foolish they were not to recognize their great artistry. And they're going to do so by demonstrating how foolish these so-called experts are by passing off their own work as the work of an established artist. Forgers continue to forge because they're making money doing it. But the initial reason is this passive-aggressive revenge. But it's a little bit confusing because the, the, the fooler is getting fooled a bit. So what are, they, what are they rationalizing when they think to themselves, I'm getting away with this? They're saying, I must be as good as the artist I am forging. If I'm making a Michelangelo, I must be as good as Michelangelo if even the experts can't tell the difference. And at the same time, they're saying these experts are have no idea what they're doing because they can't tell the difference between me, my work and a Michelangelo. And logically, those two don't work. <laughs> but I don't think they're thinking that deeply. I think they're just thinking this is a really great fun. And oh, by the way, I'm making money off this, so I'll continue. Remember our subplot, the calculus of motivation? The con artist wants money, but the forger and other characters are often motivated by ego. In this first act, the con artist, the forger, or maybe both have identified what they want to forge and have a rough idea of how they can sell it. For Dr. Charney, this is where the provenance trap begins. It's a methodology he created to explain the world of art forgery. Provenance is the documented history of an object. So it could be a receipt, it could be a contract, a diary entry that mentions it, it could be a photograph where it appears in the background, you name it. And it's important to look for provenance when you want to sell an artwork, because the existence of it helps reassure potential buyers that it's been thought of as authentic for a long enough amount of time, and that it doesn't appear to have been stolen. And one of the things that, that's, uh, that's problematic in terms of art expertise is, you know, if you want to be a master of wine, you have to fulfill all these blind tastings. If you want to be a black belt in karate, you got to work your way up and fulfill these objective um, tests. Doesn't ha that doesn't exist in art. There's no objective series of tests you have to pass in order to demonstrate your expertise as uh, an art connoisseur or in any individual artist. So just about anybody can rock up and say, I'm an expert in fill in the blank. But you can have two PhDs in it, and it doesn't mean that you can recognize an authentic work from a derivative one. Art is a murky zone where 
con men can take advantage. What about carbon dating? Testing whether the paint could have been made at that time, and all the other stuff we see on TV and in the movies. Forensic tests you'd think should be the default, but it's surprisingly rare to have forensic testing done of works of art. There's no good reason for this. It's just the art trade is not used to it. There isn't enough pressure from potential buyers to insist that forensic testing results accompany any work worth more than, say, I don't know, $50,000. There should be, but, but there isn't. And there's a complicated social dynamic that's based on hundreds of years of tradition within the art trade, that the art trade is really gentlemen buying art from gentlemen, and you should really all trust each other because gentlemen would never fool each other, right? (laughs) It doesn't always work that way. And we're back to the subplot. There's money on the line, often significant money, and the buyer doesn't take the reasonable step of having the art scientifically tested. So it comes down to the word of some expert, who may or may not know what they're talking about. The expert isn't in on the con or may not even be paid for the consultation, so what's in it for them? When the curtain comes up, we'll begin Act 2. Let's recap. The con artist and the forger have created something that needs to be authenticated so it can have real value. That authentication is most likely to come from an expert rather than scientific examination. The con artist must then find someone who has identified themselves as an expert and bring the forgery to them. What the authenticator gets from the scam is prestige. They are recognized for finding a lost work of art, and their credentials as an expert are burnished. That could lead to promotions, books, and the chance to speak before their peers at industry gatherings. The money is just a bonus. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. With authentication in hand, the con artist must find a sucker to buy it. This is most often done by tricking an auction house like Sotheby's or Christie's. These houses aren't part of the con, but they are vital players. They have agreed to auction the art based on its authentication. No reputable house will knowingly auction fake art, but the authentication gives them cover and a chance to earn a commission. It's normal that a dealer buys art and then hopes to find a buyer who's going to buy it for more than they paid for it. That was normal. Um, he got caught, however, when he had a, a very silly, you know, Monty Python moment. He tried to sell the copy and the original documentation at either Sotheby's or Christie's in one season. And he tried to sell the original 
at the other one, Sotheby's or Christie's, the same season, both in New York. And the two auction houses didn't know this until they got each other's catalogs. They thought that he had accidentally commissioned both of them to sell it, but then there were two paintings, identical with the identical documentation he was caught. Now, that's embarrassing, but it also boosts the auction house's credibility for exposing the fraud. And here's where Dr. Charney throws another plot twist at his audience. If you look at most forgeries in a vacuum, you'd be surprised they fooled anyone. I looked at about 120 case studies of forgers and included about 60 in the book. Of all of them, there's only a couple of forgers who I think were really as good as the artists they were forging. It's Act 3, and time to bring the suckers into the story. Like the auction houses, they're suspicious about the authentication. But until someone proves otherwise, the art before them is the original. That is, until the day comes when the piece of art is exposed as a forgery. Everyone circles their wagons, and the sucker is left without their money and with a useless piece of art. Or, as Inside Edition asked, is it worthless? No sooner did the gavel come down to mark the sale of Banksy's Girl with Balloon for a record $1.4 million, did the picture start to slip out of its frame into shreds below. The anonymous artist claims to be behind the stunt. Sotheby's claims it was shocked by the stunt. The auction house is also trying to figure out what this means for the value of the painting. Considering the artist, who is known for using his craft to pull pranks and make ideological points, some artists speculate the value of Girl with Balloon could actually soar. In the end, nine bidders went for the shredded art, with one of them paying $25.4 million. Remember, it sold for $1.4 million. The original buyer decided to keep it after the shredding, and that decision earned them $24 million. Then there's another plot twist. Instead of the original buyer being humiliated, even if they earn $24 million, they can revel in their disgrace. Dr. Charney explains. For works of art by established artists, um, it's actually a point of pride to pay more rather than less. Because there's this um, element of conspicuous consumption, I've, I've heard people throw around a statistic that's probably right. There's about 1,500 art collectors in the world who are serious players, and that's it. Now, that might sound like a lot, but if you think that's the whole, that's the complete the world of people who can really buy just about anything they want, it's a relatively small community. They all know each other, and there's pride in buying something and throwing your weight around and saying, I can drop however many millions on this just because I feel like it. The play ends as everyone has a good laugh. The other potential suckers crow about their wisdom and not falling for the scam, and the sucker brags about the additional money they made. And if not, they can all laugh about it while sipping fine cognac. It's almost as if no crime has been committed. But there has been. In most places, there's no law against forgery. The con artists are arrested for fraud. The fraud was committed when con artists took something of little value and passed it off as something with great value. 
The villains in this drama are the forger and the con artist. They wrote the script, set the scene, and directed the cast into the surprise ending where the con artist pockets the money and leaves the stage to prepare for their next performance. A successful con seduces a sucker into a world where their dreams can come true. Power and great riches are within their grasp. This magic casts a spell that leads its audience to hand over all their money to scammers who vanish before the sucker realizes it was all an illusion. If you enjoy the podcast, please help us out by telling your friends and encouraging them to listen. Scams and Cons is available wherever podcasts are found and at scamsandcons.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. Just look for Scams and Cons. Lastly, we'd be grateful for a five-star rating wherever you're listening right now. It really does go a long way toward helping us build our audience. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.